episode 152 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 22nd of November, 2021. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. How's it going? Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello from Linux. (laughs) Welcome back, Graham. You uh, managed to get back from your holiday then. I survived, yeah. It rained constantly, but it was it was still worth going. The pubs are open. <laughs> That's the main thing. And Will, yes, you're no longer using a Mac. Yes, and I am very happy about it. It's just made my whole life a lot easier. My workflow is improved. Everything about this is just definitely better for me. Except getting Mumble to work. Well, there was that, yeah. And this is with Zubuntu then? Yeah. I have had a few crashes and a few instabilities, but I went for the LTS version and having spoken to Popey, I think perhaps that was a mistake. So maybe now it's all working properly, maybe I will move to the uh, to the latest release instead. But well, well, we'll see. Now it's all working, let's break it. Well, yeah, quite. <laughs> all right, let's do some news then. The first is that we've had some updates on the Steam Deck. It's going to be delayed until February 2022. That's the first bit of news. Graham, which batch were you in, and did you get an email saying it was delayed? I was in the second batch, despite really trying hard to get it the second it became available. The second batch was the second quarter of 2022. But I did get the email uh, from Valve saying that the first batch will be delayed, and therefore you can assume that every other batch is going to be delayed after that. Um, So yeah, sad. I'm not... Terribly surprised. I'm sure we'll get into this. I've, I've, over the last two years, I think because of lockdown, I think I've backed about four or five Kickstarters, all tech based, all waiting for chips and all kinds of other things. They've all been delayed. Um, and so it even happens to immortals like Valve. This is ultimately good, though, I think, in terms of the software performance that we're going to get from it, because they're going to have an extra two months to work on it. Yeah, and Liam points that out in his article, which, incidentally, I think is very well written. Um, it's I know it's a list of facts, but uh, I found everything I needed to know there. Uh, so do read it. But, yeah, it's it gives them an extra bit of time to work on SteamOS 3. They have said that they want to position it as not another platform. They want game developers to just treat it as if it was a normal PC, uh, by which they mean Windows. And I think that's a really nice attitude to take, not for Valve themselves, but for the owners of these devices to know that Valve want it to work just as well as a Windows PC would is is really um, exciting to own one of those devices, knowing that it will work. But we do know that SteamOS 3 is going to be based on an immutable file system. We don't know if it's going to be OS3 or what yet, but something like that at least, which sort of does make sense for a consumer device. Especially one that's based on Arch, yeah. Yeah, and especially one that's using the Steam installer, which remember when it accidentally deleted a lot of stuff. <laughs> but yes, I think however they do it on top of that, um, having something that you can roll back to that's atomic is makes an awful lot of sense. Otherwise, it's just going to be a nightmare to support. But they did say that you will be able to have like a developer or advanced mode where you will have access to the file system and you will be able to fuck it up if you want to. <laughs> and, and of course, they've always said this is just a PC. You can install whatever you want on it, including Windows, if you really want to. Yeah, and I'm sure there's all kinds of clever file system stuff you can do to you know, add packages on top of what is the immutable part and roll it back if you need to. And maybe maybe that's what, what they're talking about. I mean, they do say you can pretty much install anything without... And it doesn't sound like you need to jump through any particular hoops. Even developer mode, I don't think, needs to be enabled to in, just install your own software. But it's probably too early to say. Um, I know from backing uh, the HTC Vive VR headset, as soon as that came out, 
the whole Valve ecosystem surrounding that really didn't reach any maturity for at least a year. Um, and it feels the same way with this. So yeah, I agree that this delay is also going to be a benefit for most average users. But people wanted it for Christmas, didn't they? Yeah, I suppose they'll have to switch to PS5s. Oh no, they can't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> no, they'll just have to install Linux on an old machine instead. <laughs> okay, the future of documentation at Canonical, a post by Daniela Procida. Here he talks about how all the documentation so far that Canonical have done is shit, thanks to you, Graham. <laughs> it's and, true, uh, yeah. <laughs> He's come to fix it for you all. And he's, he sets out this very grand plan for how to improve that documentation and make it really amazing and how that will even affect the rest of the industry. Yes. <laughs> so this is this is very, very close to my day job. I mean, um, I obviously am a technical writer at Canonical and I've, I've worked closely with Daniele, um, since he started, I think his title is Director of Engineering, but he's been brought in specifically to try and sort out the disparate, disconnected, done in all kinds of different ways, documentation sets that Canonical has. I think he may have been there for four or five months. But he does point out that this is not just a Canonical problem. This is an industry-wide problem, isn't it? That documentation generally is a bit shit. I really think so. I can't think of anybody who's really solved this problem. Um, and obviously, I think about it quite a lot. It's difficult because for a million reasons. And, and a lot of people instantly turn off when you start talking about it, which is perhaps the first one. But Daniel is a very interesting... I don't want to sound... I, I mean, he's got a very interesting background. He's one of the core members of Django. He's a Python developer. And then came up with this very kind of... C-level friendly Dear Taxis framework, which is a way of organising documentation, um, which is a prescriptive way of organising documentation. I think it's interesting for Canonical to bring in somebody like this and then try and use this approach across all documentation sets. As Daniele points out in that blog post, it's very early. I'm just as interested as everyone else to see how it will turn out. And obviously, I hope it's successful. With the Dear Taxis framework, it's quite different to what you might be used to. I mean, the Ubuntu core documentation that I'm responsible for has already moved to this kind of organization, so you can see it there. But for, if you're interested in documentation, even before he started working at Canonical, his proposals had got a kind of a lot of internet coverage on places like Hacker News, and it had already spawned a lot of discussions about how documentation should be structured. And people, a lot of people are interested in his approach. So it's quite good being able to see this firsthand and see how it might affect a company like Canonical. I know that when we try these random distros, we do go on about the documentation being really important, but I suppose it is equally important for well-known ones, arguably even more important. So it is good that Canonical have brought someone in who seems to be an expert. He seems to be quite a respected expert at that. And maybe his grand vision of influencing the rest of the industry will actually come to pass and it'll make a big difference here. Yeah. The real challenge remains convincing the engineers, really, to make documentation part of their process. And that's always kind of been the case. And it, I, I don't have an easy answer to make, uh, other than changing processes so features aren't actually ticked off unless documentation exists, which, which we don't do. And lots of places try and then it half works. And there are places that hire hundreds of technical writers. There are places that don't have any, and this, they still all have failings. It's it's a really, I mean, I find it a really interesting problem, but it's a very, very difficult problem to try and solve. I mean, this is a, a pretty interesting approach. 
Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to latenightlinux.com slash support if you want to join those people. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. But email, that's the best way, show at latenightlinux.com. And do check out Late Night Linux Extra 35. I talked to Carl George, who works for Red Hat, on Fedora and CentOS and RHEL to a certain extent. And he told me all about that world. I did actually make a mistake at the beginning of that episode where I said that none of us lot use any of those distros because, Graham, you do have a CentOS box. God, that's a good memory. That's true. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I only remember that afterwards. So uh, that was a mistake. But you don't use it much, do you? You're not enthusiastic about it. It just sits there doing its thing. It does. It's sat there for years doing its thing. I really shouldn't admit that. But yeah, it does all my email and things like that. (laughs) And my TMUX sessions for IRC. Yeah, but ultimately, we don't use Fedora. We're not sort of invested in it in the way that we are with you and Arch, obviously, Graham, and Ubuntu for the rest of us, or Ubuntu bases. So it was nice to hear about stuff on that side of the fence, especially with the CentOS and CentOS Stream stuff. You'd really wish that Red Hat actually got him to come on with you last year. Yeah, well, he did make appearances on Linux Unplugged and stuff, and that was probably my mistake of not talking to him then. But it's it's nice to talk to him now. The dust has settled, and we're approaching the end of support for the latest uh, CentOS Linux, as they're now calling it. But he was very candid, actually, about that whole thing. Yeah, he was. Yeah, it was good. Check it out anyway. I'll link in the show notes. And also check out Linux After Dark, new episode coming this Friday. So in news that we've definitely never heard before, a German state is planning to switch 25,000 PCs to LibreOffice and ultimately to Linux. What could possibly go wrong with this? Who's this Mike Saunders chap? (laughs) Your old colleague Mike Saunders wrote this for uh, the Document Foundation, the thing we'll link to. Yeah, and um, and Mike, I still think, works for the Document Foundation. And funnily enough, it it was Mike and I who went to interview um, the people at the Linux Project when the city of Munich was experimented for a while until Microsoft moved their offices just outside the Munich city boundary. So it's good that Mike's done this. Um, I don't know, Mike, Mike's got some journalist skills. Surely he wouldn't, she wouldn't lie to us. No, but I'm sure it'll be a new Microsoft European headquarters that'll be up in (laughs) Schleswig-Holstein anytime soon as well. The Northern German headquarters. (laughs) Well, there's an interview with CT Magazine on Heiser Online which is in German, but there is a Google Translate link that we can uh, put in the show notes, with 
Jan Philipp Albrecht, who is the digital minister. And it actually makes for quite good reading. They seem to have learned the lessons from the Limux fiasco. They haven't decided what distro they're going to go for yet. And they're not going just headfirst into it. They're doing what we've always said, switch the applications out first before you switch out the underlying operating system. Get people used to using LibreOffice, make sure that's all well and good. And then it's at much less of a upheaval to go to a Linux-based operating system. He's asked in this interview, which Linux distribution are you using? And he says, we found in a study that five major distributions are basically suitable for our purposes. In the next step, we will tender the implementation and maintenance of a Linux workstation as a service. That, to me, sounds like they're going to pay a company like SUSE or Canonical or Red Hat and do it properly. Yeah, and it also sounds like one of those won't be, isn't Arch, because otherwise they would have said. Yeah, they would have immediately <laughs> said so. <wouldn't> they? <laughs> Maybe I'm being overly optimistic here. Yes, you are. By the end of the decade, there will be 13 European headquarters in Germany because <laughs> that happens to be the number of states they have. I don't know. I really don't know. Because Windows 11 is cited as one of the reasons for this because they've got a load of old hardware that's going to be left behind. Oh, yeah. Just like Windows 7 and 8. Yeah, but the difference is that you could officially run Windows 10 on really shit old hardware and it might run dog slow, but you can still officially upgrade to it. Whereas 11, they've got this ridiculous cutoff, which means that you have to replace those old machines. And yeah, okay, you can use registry hacks or whatever, but official government systems are not going to be using registry hacks, are they? They want everything to be totally licensed and everything. And so it seems that Windows 11 is a genuine opportunity here. Unlike the other ones that we thought were, maybe this really is. It does make sense doing it. It has to work for somebody. Of course it makes sense. Like I, t- I totally get why you would do it. And you should be made to do it with government money or taxpayers' money. You shouldn't be yeah. just throwing it at some other corporation. All right, but what about this? He's asked, what about the costs? Will open source be cheaper than proprietary software for taxpayers or more expensive? And the reply is, I assume the costs will be roughly equal. Hmm. This is someone who's going into this with his eyes open. Great, but how long is he going to be there for? And how long's the next guy who got a a Merc just in the post? I don't know where it came from. And, you know, I I love Microsoft software because I am, is it on the Sony X PlayStation Z? And uh, yeah, please, uh, let's have a Microsoft campus here. Well, it might be a case of fool me once and fool me twice and all that, but I'm still sticking with it. This is good news. This is going to happen. They're going to do it properly. And they're going to set an example for the rest of Germany, the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. And this is a turning point. I'm, I'm with Joe on this. I think, yes, it, it's fighting against the tide of, of progress in open source and Linux. And yeah, why not? So something that's not strictly Linuxy, well, it's not Linuxy at all, but it does uh, affect us. It's Linux adjacent, let's just say. And that is that Apple has announced their self-service repair program, whereby starting in the US, but eventually spreading to the rest of the world, end users will be able to buy the parts, or some of the parts at least, from Apple to fix their iPhones and Macs. Again, eventually. This is going to take a while to roll out. This, at first, I was very uh, optimistic about, but the more takes that I have read and listened to about it, the less optimistic I am. Yeah, having replaced a couple of iPhone screens myself, and I class myself as reasonably handy with a screwdriver, 
this is not something that I would recommend to anybody unless you ha- have got the patience of a saint and the like dexterity of a brain surgeon, then I think you'll end up fucking up your phone and having to buy a new one. And I wonder if that isn't part of the plan <laughs> after all. Oh, that's cynical. That's not why I'm down about this. They clearly say in this press release that for the vast majority of people, you're going to want to take it to a professional. But if you are a technical enough person to do it yourself, you'll be able to. So I'm not having that. I'm sure there will be a lot of cack-handed people who think they can do it and fuck it up and need to buy a new one. But I, I, that's not really what this is about, I don't think. I still think it's a good thing, and I'm kind of in the will category of repair. I actually fixed my daughter's 10-inch tablet and they got a broken screen, and he was able to use my 3D printer to put the thing flat down on the 3D printer to heat it up to get rid of all of that gunk so that the screen came out a bit easier, but I still broke it and got a million different fragments, Mm. which I inhaled. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But what I think is good news is that for a while it seemed that Apple was openly antagonistic towards people opening up their devices. It seemed like they'd put certain kinds of different screws in on purpose to stop people opening things or certain chips and certain replacement parts that would screw up your your build effectively. If you change the screen on an iPhone, for example, it's just not working. Um, So I feel like at least the message is a good one, that we tolerate people trying to fix their own hardware um, because that's much more in line with what they say they're trying to do with making all of their hardware carbon neutral at least and this is a big step towards make doing that making things fixable is that only because the eu is saber rattling hmm. i don't think it's the eu i think it's more on the american side of things probably both to be honest but i think that's what this is about this is a, about appeasing legislators with just a token effort really because they only talk about screens and batteries they don't talk about charging ports earpieces other common things that go wrong and they may deliver on that. This is only an announcement at this stage. We, we don't know. And having watched Lewis Rossman's take on this, and he's kind of the face of the right to repair movement for better or worse, but his take on it is that he's very skeptical because they announced something fairly similar two or three years ago where any repair shop can get official parts. But that turned out to be bullshit, basically. Just not at all a full set of parts and tools and manuals and everything. And there was a lot of caveats with it. So I'm remaining very skeptical about this. I think that overall it's a good thing insofar as companies are at least having to pay lip service to the idea of right to repair. So the Overton window is shifting slightly. That's good. But whether this in of itself is strictly positive remains to be seen. I think if it supports the cottage industry of like phone shops on corners holding stock and being able to run viable businesses because people will take their phones to these places with the expectation that it can be repaired with genuine parts and they won't, I don't know, void their warranty or find that their fingerprint scanner suddenly stops working, then I think that that is a good thing. I think that um, those sort of businesses need to exist uh, in, in the future, because everybody's got a phone in their pocket and sooner or later you're going to need it fixing. If they are legitimising that business or acknowledging that those those industries exist, then that's a good thing. At least things aren't getting worse. I don't really want to support, you know, and say Apple's a good player in this, but at least it's not because other people copy them as well. So at least with Apple doing this, maybe it draws a line somewhere in the sand. Maybe not. 
Well, that's what I was talking about with moving the Overton window. Hopefully, all the other companies will follow suit as usual, and it will start this revolution of all companies supplying spare parts and tools and manuals to fix stuff. And we can go some way to solving this e-waste problem. Yeah, I think at the least, I think they should be able to design screens that are repairable, that are replaceable, I mean, and still have sexy phones. Um, because everybody's got a broken screen. Or phone jacks. Yeah. Oh, no, they don't have those anymore. <laughs> my my new screen had a blob of solder land on it, and it's only like a month old. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Gorilla Glass. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash late night Linux and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash late-night-linux. Google Stadia is two years old, and they're starting to give away hardware or virtually give it away. Like You can get a Chromecast Ultra, which isn't the latest generation, but it's still reasonably good and a controller for 20 quid now, which seems awfully cheap to me. It seems like they're getting a bit desperate. Flood damage, closing down, sale, everything must go. <laughs> yeah. It won't be available next time around. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that, that this is a Wi-Fi controller. So, you know, it's built for Stadia. It's You can use it over US, with a USB connection as a generic uh, games controller, but you can't use it with Bluetooth, which is what everyone would like to use it as. And it's almost like they've they've crippled it purposefully. It has the hardware, but they've not released the, the drivers um, so that people can't just use it as a cheap Xbox 360 replacement. Will, you're a pretty avid gamer. Are you not tempted yet? No, not, not in the slightest. Uh, when we talked about this well, presumably two years ago, I said at the time, well, at least I hope I did, said at the time that I do not believe that streaming games is anything that anybody actually wants. I think people want to own the games on the machines that they want to play them on in, you know, in a much more serious manner than, you know, picking up a phone or a, um, a handheld device and just doing some casual gaming. Um, I just don't see the market for the AAA rated games in a format which is casual. I have no interest in it, and I don't think anybody else does. Well, judging by the events that have unfolded, I think you might be right there. How long do we think it's got left then? January. (laughs) (laughs) Unless they come up with some sort of exclusive games slash use case that I can't imagine, I think another 12 months and they'll pull the plug. We'll delete your Gmail account if you don't use it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, back in October, we didn't cover this at the time, but they essentially white-labeled the service to AT&T in the US, and that is surely its future, is sort of almost selling the shovels to it. All these other companies that want to do game streaming that think it's the future, Google's got all the back end now, and so they can just license that technology to them and let them deal with all the sales and marketing side of it. 
This is a bit where if we could cut into a 1980s video where it's like, do you want to play first-person shooters <laughs> with a rotary dial phone? <laughs> do I? I think every time we've seen white-labeled services in the recent past, be they video rentals or, well, actually that's the, the only example I've got, video rentals, they haven't really worked. People don't want the white-labeled cut-down version. They want the Netflix or they want the Hulu I think the same is true of game streaming. I don't think that that a white-labeled game streaming service exists, and especially when people like Netflix are giving away free games on Android, like actual games, not streamed games. I can't understand how AT&T, for example, would expect to compete. Especially with the shocking state of internet infrastructure in the US, which is the, the home market for Stadia and AT&T. How, how can they possibly make game streaming work when a significant chunk of that country have got almost a monopoly on broadband service. They're paying hundreds of dollars a month for piss-poor service that's just not capable. I mean, it's all well and good if you're in some of the big cities where you can get gigabit and stuff, but compared to the rest of the world, it's just shit there, I hear. You could argue that Starlink could help with this once they get going and they get many, um, what do they call them, Earth stations with equipment in them. You can imagine that the latency will be a lot lower. But I can't imagine Starlink saying, yeah, we're totally on board with you running Stadia infrastructure in our data centers. They will have their own equivalent and, you know, they'll bundle it with Starlink and that's what people will use. No, they'll white label it off Google, won't they? No, they won't because then they'll be giving Google a fiver for every tenner that they get, and they won't want that. But then it's better to spend a fiver to make a tenner than spend 20 or 30 to make a tenner running it all on your own infrastructure, isn't it? I don't think that modern businesses see it that way. I think it's about owning the entire thing or none of it. I don't think just being part of a market is good enough for these startups anymore, and I still think Stadia as a startup, even though it's got the might of Google behind it, the way that Google run projects, it is its own entity. And I think that they either need to own the entire market and then they will start ramping up their prices or they'll just drop out of it. And I don't think that um, Starlink would be interested in it. Well, I think that as I put together the news roundup for Christmas 2022, I think that the death of Stadia will be in that. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops and servers and most parts are configurable so you can pick the CPU, RAM and storage that's right for you. If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy and Spain and if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop down at checkout and you can select late night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Let's do a quick KDE corner before we get out of here then. The first one, how to create KDE applets. This is quite a good video, about 25 minutes long. It's a part one. It says I haven't seen a part two yet. Maybe I missed it. But I have a sort of selfish reason for this that I'm hoping to make one, maybe two at least as well. And I never get around to reading docs. So I hope this can help me and I will obviously release it as soon as I can. It'll be brilliant. <laughs> Fair enough. The next one is about some Canadian blog that I've never heard of that everyone seems to be talking about. 
I hear he's a bit useless with Linux. Yeah, imagine he didn't read the documentation, didn't read the warning, <laughs> blitzed his entire system. It's amazing when he created the kernel, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I know. You think he'd know how to do these things, but yeah, no, different Linux. But uh, he uh, he has now managed to have apt get a patch and discover has got a patch now to stop you doing silly things. So I guess that's good, is it? Talk about influential, eh? I know. All right, what's this evolving 3D effects in Plasma? Yeah, Martin Flusser, he has a quite a cool article where it takes us through the various stages that 3D effects have gone through. And it's scary that he says, even like back in the mid to late 2000s, the hardware was like a core two duo was seen as new. And that was the first time we had two cores, which it disturbed me no end. So to give the fact that a lot of the very oldest effects are not properly multi-threaded and stuff is probably reason why qt quick is a way better thing of doing things and he walks through the fact that you know they've got the things like the cube and stuff are kind of holding 3d effects back because they're the old way of doing things but we had the tools in qt quick to rewrite them all and um yeah it's, it's just an interesting walk through all of that all right be flexible to win big it's another blog post from Nate. Uh, he's talking about how the fact that he thinks the reason why Android and Windows got where they were is the fact that they were they didn't care what they ran. They just ran everything that they could. And he thinks KD could be that for Linux desktop. GNOME might be more focused, a bit like the way the Mac is. It's kind of a thing where he goes through the features and bug fixes in the comments. There's quite a good discussion there that's worth looking at, even if you're not into the main points of the the article, but it's it's trying to get people involved. They're trying to see that there's so many bug reports, people complaining that, you know, new features, why don't you work on bugs? And he responds to that. And uh, yeah, the whole thing overall, quite a good read. So well worth it. And Pine Foreign Cross Compilation. Han Young has a article on how to cross compile for the pine phone with clang which is great and i want all the developers to read this and build me all the apps i need for my new phone when i get it but it is actually quite an interesting read right well links to all that in the show notes as usual then we'll be back next week when we'll be looking at alt linux definitely not outright linux <laughs> <laughs> but until then i've been joe i've been phelan i've been graham and i've been will see you later 